0: Hey, welcome to Apthropology, the podcast where we usually are talking to leaders in the mobile app space about how they engage and interact with their users. But this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. So this week, you just get me. I'm Jim. I'm head of Growth Amp. And today, we're going to talk about how lifecycle marketers are going to be the heroes of 2023 and how user journeys are not going to be the tool that gets us there. So let's do a little background first. Um, 2020, 2021, were kind of record-setting years for many apps, uh, especially in e-commerce and streaming media area. So these are like the Amazons, the Walmarts, the Targets, the Hulu. Basically, you couldn't go to the store. So it makes sense that all these e-commerce giants are just having gangbusters years. Um, same thing, food delivery, all of those industries. So some apps hit year-over-year growth of like well over 100%. Generally, consumer spending was up over 30% across the board. And that's uh, with the Android App Store and also so Google and, um, and iPhone. So, But then, fast forward a couple of years, the world is opening back up. People are itching to get back outside. People are eating restaurants again. Uh, then we have this looming recession on our hands. And the result is, in 2023, growth is down big time. So those same apps that were having record years a couple of years ago have started the layoff cycle. And generally, companies just have less cash on hand. And we're kind of seeing that all over the place. So now companies are scraping for ways to get growth. And that is leading to some, some interesting decisions. So, so the obvious answer when you're questioned with growth and how do you grow, all that is customer acquisition, right? So companies are turning to advertising, but there's a lot going on there too. So it started with GDPR when GDPR took over. And I think even people who aren't familiar with what GDPR is know that now every time you go to any website, you have to click to accept cookies. And, and it's a an horribly annoying user experience and process, um, but one that's focused on user privacy, which is important. Uh, and then iOS 14 happened. And then iOS 15, iOS 16, with each iteration tightening the requirements and making it harder to target users. So privacy, obviously very important, but it makes it much harder for advertisers. So I saw Forbes said that Apple's privacy changes on the iPhone have cut the average mobile advertiser's ROI on ads by almost 40%. Um, So we're really seeing the squeeze there. It's making a meaningful difference when it comes to advertising and the expected return that you can get off of that advertising. So uh, another note with Google Chrome, Google keeps threatening to remove third-party cookies from Chrome. They said this would happen in 2022. Um, Now I think they're at 2024, um, and they're trying to get their own thing up and running. So we'll see how that goes, their own alternative to third-party cookies. um, More news on that. So now the question is, with all of this going on, uh, where are apps to turn for this growth? So on one side, you have shrinking budgets, you have layoffs, uh, you have less people to create ads, and you have less money to spend on ads. On the other side, we're seeing dwindling app effectiveness, more competition, more things in the market. It's kind of leaving apps in a tight pinch when it comes to growth. But there is a silver lining on this cloud, and that is your existing users. So we've seen data from a lot of apps we've worked with. Most most apps have a large percentage of unconverted users. These are users that are on your free plan, for example. So one gaming app we worked with had only 10% of their users who were actively playing paid games. So what were the rest of them doing? They were playing free games. Uh, they had the app and they visited, but they didn't play or they had the app, but they weren't even opening it. So the app was just installed on their phone, but they weren't doing anything. Or they were just playing uninstalled. If we take another example, you could look at Spotify. So I just pulled the numbers this morning in Spotify. 43% of their active users are premium subscribers. So I mean, if you could do the basic math here, that means 57% of their users are not. They're just using it for free. And that's me. <laughs> so while these users aren't currently paying for your product, these, these dormant, these lurking, these inactive users, there is one major advantage with them. And that is... Uh, so before I get to that, actually, they've already downloaded your app. right? So that's a great first step. And they have some familiarity with you because they've seen your logo. You have, Again, they have your app. They know what it looks like. Uh, but the biggest advantage is you can talk to them for free. So, so this is why you need to be putting more energy and attention into your lifecycle marketing efforts because you don't have to spend money on ads and you don't have to rely on this poor or crappy targeting. So it kind of fixes both ends of the, of the spectrum here. It doesn't cost money. You don't need to buy ads and you don't have to deal with the really poor targeting. These are people who already have your app. So, I mean, look at the data. Like we talked about, Spot, Spotify could double their revenue if they converted more of their existing user base, right? Because over half of their user base... Are not premium subscribers so that leads to the next question how so how are we to supposed to engage these users uh, we obviously haven't been able to do it yet right because they're on the app but they're not active they're not paying they're not subscribed so obviously the methods that we've been using have not worked to date with these people so this leads us to the fallacy of user journeys so first we'll say what is a user journey um, user journeys are the ways that our users traverse our apps um, and relate to our apps uh, more accurately it's the journey that we want them to traverse and virtually all martech tools allow you to build them so our key user journeys include things like onboarding so what happens when a user first downloads our app or reactivation is another one so how do we get them back if they go dormant they they were buying things now they're not what do we do Uh, Some other ones are abandoned cart and a post-purchase flow, anything like that. Really common in email, but they're being applied kind of across the board to everything. And you'll find all kinds of articles and tools to help you build journeys like these. Um, I'd argue it's not because it's the most effective way of doing things. It's just the easiest thing to do. So let's walk through an example of an onboarding flow, typical onboarding flow. So we'd ask ourselves, what should we do first? Uh, Someone downloads our app. What do we do? Uh, send them a welcome message should we send them a discount right off the bat should we send them a product recommendation all the bat uh, off the bat should we send them a link to a getting started guide I mean it kind of depends what our app is who our user is what the relation is right so if we're if we're e-commerce do we send a product recommendation do we just send a general hello do we give them a discount off their first order there's a, a lot of different things we could try. And then we have to add the timing element to that. So when should we send it? Should we send it after five minutes, after two minutes? Do we want to send it when they're already in the app? Is it supposed to encourage them to open it up if they've shut it already? Uh, you know, So do we send it the next day? There's a lot of questions. And this always changes by medium, and I'd argue it changes by user too. So really, if you can see, it's a lot of guesswork at the beginning, uh, or a lot of experimentation and testing that needs to happen before we arrive at at our solution at what are we're going to do so and then there's another added complexity of knowing what our user has already done so for example a generic welcome message might be great if someone just downloaded our app but they haven't actually done anything yet Uh, but what if they've already navigated past a few products added a couple to the cart and then even maybe made a purchase like is the generic welcome message really still the right thing to send So most tools account for this uh, and they add if statements and decision trees and our flowchart gets much more complex. So now if somebody joins but they don't buy but maybe they looked at stuff maybe we send a discount but if somebody joins and then they do buy maybe we send a product recommendation and you can see how this quickly spirals and you can see uh, some apps have published like their decision tree for what they do. And it's, it's really big and it's really elaborate. It takes a lot of people to work on. And then the question comes of how do you deal with maintenance and iteration? So really, you can spend a lot of time on that. And like, let's go back to the timing piece. So I've seen articles that say the best practice for an abandoned cart push notification, for example, is 30 minutes. Uh, I would argue why. So, so for an example, just to bring it to real life, like if I'm making a big purchase, I will wait and I will discuss it with my wife. So the best time is actually probably a 24 hour period. Cause it's not, I didn't abandon the cart by accident. I did it intentionally cause I need to stop and talk to her. Um, so it's, it's just a good reminder that next day, did I do that? But for example, if I'm sitting right next to her, then I can show her really quick and then I can buy and then maybe five minutes is better. Um, so, so time is also a critical variable that's often overlooked. Um, just because there is something that is a best practice doesn't mean it's the best practice for you or for your users. So as you can see, this is kind of a really messy process. Um, so we have to ask, like, how do we make each of these small decisions as we're building our user journey. And usually it's the AB test. Usually an AB test is the answer. So we pull on the data science team if we have one to run some experiments, some tools let you do this kind of lightly. And if the generic welcome message becomes the most successful uh, at engaging at at like a 15% success rate, that success rate, excuse me, then it becomes the new de facto standard. All of a sudden, everybody gets the generic welcome message, despite the fact that it didn't work for the other 85% of their users or To coin my good friend, Sean Wheeler, we are designing for our largest minority. (laughs) So we actually did a study on user journey effectiveness with a retail app we worked with. Um, I can link to this in the show notes. There was a simple journey that we wanted to see. So for example, the user comes and they open the app, or maybe they click on a promotion, or maybe they click on a push notification. Um, They could search products, apply filters. View the cart, maybe click a recommendation, add it to cart, start checkout, complete checkout. So basically, you get in somehow. You see the product. You know, ideally, you'd see a push notification with a product. You would click and you would enter and you would see that product. You would start the checkout process and you would complete the checkout process, right? So in actuality, they look much different. So one user, this is just an example of one user we tracked. uh, They viewed the homepage they viewed a promo, they viewed the products list, they went to recommendations, they went to view cart, but then they bounced back and viewed a product, but then they clicked on a recommendation, but then they picked a category that the product was in, they filtered the product categories, then they clicked on a products list. Anyway, they added parts to wish list, and then they removed an item from their cart, and then they updated the app, actually, and then came back and applied a promo. I mean... These are the real journeys that our users actually take with our apps every day. Um, so, very, very rarely do they actually take the idyllic path. So, we followed about 42,000 users for a week. So, after heavy filtering and removing a bunch of data, like we removed all the journeys that didn't actually check out, right? So, we only followed people who had a successful checkout experience. We observed over 50,000 unique paths users took between app opened and purchase complete. So again, our oversimplified model is you click the push notification, you land on the product, you click to check out, and you check out. That would be our ideal. Nobody took that path. We had 50,000 unique paths. Only 6.8% of the users took the same path as someone else. And only 1.2% of the users who made multiple purchases in the same week followed the same path that they did on their previous purchase. Everybody did something absolutely different. And again, the link in the show notes. The point is, if we wanted to be accurate and true to the user journeys that our actual users want to journey, right, because no one coerced them into that, that was their own natural progression and natural path and interaction with the app, we would need over 50,000 journeys to reflect the successful, that's just the successful journeys that our customers took on their way to a purchase my larger question is, do you really think apps like Amazon, Netflix, Spotify, etc., are building these user journeys? So do you think that that someone's sitting in the back room at Amazon, figuring out what to send new users, making little if statements, adding delay times? And if they're not, why not? So it's, it's very doubtful that they are, and it's likely because they know that there's a better way. So let's, Let's jump into an ideal world for a second and talk about how we would help motivate or influence people in real life. So, like, how would we do it in marketing or how do we do it in sales? First, we get to know our customers, right? What are their goals? What are their motivations? So, we're not at first thinking about what we want them to do. We have a goal in mind, but we need to get to know them uh, and what their individual motivations are. So, and we know that not everyone will fit into the same bucket. Um, A great example is like coffee. Why do people like coffee? Um, Some people like it for the taste. Some people like it for the energy. Some people like it for the digestive benefits. Uh, Some people want it to want to feel like part of a group. Some people want to feel comfort and coffee makes them feel comfort in a routine, right? There's, There's a million reasons why people want the same product or why people do what they do. So, and then we learn, right? So we study our users and we get to know them individually and we learn about them. We learn from each person's response. And so we adjust our personas and our approach. So the ideal is like this. We have our goals. So again, maybe it's to book a meeting. Maybe it's to get someone to sign up for a free trial or buy a product, whatever it is. Then we take what we know about, what we know has helped similar people reach that goal. So again, if we're bucketing people in the coffee group and we know that it's about taste, then when we talk to someone who's also interested in taste, we're going to emphasize the taste, right? And we're going to use all the tactics, all the learnings, all the skills from the previous taste interested people that we talked about. Uh, for another example, you know, if coffee is all about comfort and belonging with someone else, we're not going to emphasize the taste. We're going to talk about the comfort and belonging and environment and things like that. So maybe there's a certain resource or a certain messaging approach that's worked really well. Uh, maybe it's having them talk to an existing customer, you know, making a connection through a review or some other process, whatever it is. It doesn't mean it works for everybody, but it worked really well for similar people to the user that we're talking about right now. So and then we apply that messaging strategy to this prospect and see how it does. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we adjust. And basically this is what the big apps do. Uh, mostly because they have the data teams to do it. So from what I found on Google, Amazon has a data team of over 1,800 people. And this is pre-layoff numbers. So, So this is beyond the grasp of most typical apps, right? So what does this mean for regular apps? So again, we need to keep in mind that the most tools, most of the tools that implement user journeys the way they do, they do it because it's easy to do, right? So not because it's the best thing to do. It's easy to set up and regulate a list of rules. So if user X clicks on a link, we fire off message Y after Z amount of time. That is super easy for any software to do, right? So somebody in like their first year of coding school could write up something like that. So is it effective though? Maybe. Better than nothing. Maybe, right? Um, But look again at the current success rates today. So again, Spotify is at 43% success, which is considered very good, right? So the problem is this user journey approach seems like the only feasible option for the vast majority of apps because they don't have the time and resources to create an elaborate system like the big players do which is which is this is exactly why we built amp actually so we actually don't allow you to build user journeys at all like you physically can't build one in amp and it's not because we can't build one we could make a user journey builder incredibly fast we could launch one in a week if we wanted but that's how much we disagree with the effectiveness of user journeys in general, we have not seen it play out um, over and over again. What we see is people get bogged down with time and resources to create these user journeys that again appeal to the largest minority of your users, not the majority of them, and it doesn't talk to them individually. Um, if you actually did build that system where you're top down assigning individuals to unique journeys, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be feasible. There's way too much there. So we actually implement a strategy similar to the sales example, where if a user hits your app, we track all that data. So visit times, sessions, products, views, add to cart, add to wish wishlist, checkouts, all of it. Mind you, this is your first party data, so it's not cookies and it's not abstracting from other sites and it's not any of that messiness. It's not affected by regulations. It's all stuff that happens on your app. Uh, then we cluster the users based on actions and attributes that we care about. So we group like people, um, and again, someone can be part of multiple groups. So, for example, if they are the usually visit at 7 p.m. group, they can also be the love cats group, right? If you had pet food or pet stores, you would know dogs versus cats and times and things. So uh, one single member is not part of a specific like demographic segment. They're part of a this cluster that can move and grow. So they might go from a 7 p.m. person to like a 4 p.m group, and we can account for that variance over time, too, because we expect to see variance over time. Uh, And then we can guide people to completing whatever your goals are based on what has helped similar users in the same cluster achieve the same goals. And we use the library of messages that we help you build and maintain. So you can see, with all this data in hand of everybody's actions, what they're interested in, what time they interact, all this stuff, what they've previously done on your app, what other users have done, what's led other users to more successful actions, we shouldn't need to send generic welcome messages. In fact, I'd argue that generic welcome messages are what you do when you don't know what else to do, and I would actually probably lump discounts in that bucket. So we essentially build individual custom paths for each user, and our system continuously experiments and checks to see if any of our assumptions have changed. I shouldn't say assumptions, I should say any of the things that we have seen historically have changed. You can't base everything off of historical data. So for example, like back to school season will likely affect what message send times are the most effective. Um, you really can never stop testing. If someone has a child, gets married, any, any life event or change or really external events, um, something in the news will affect users' behavior. So you have to be prepared to react to that. Uh, so, you d- so you certainly don't have to use this. You can build a system like this yourself. Um, it just took us a lot of money and resources in several years to build and refine. Uh, so it might be more practical to benefit from our investment. Anyway, the most important thing is that you need to ensure that you continue to test and you need to ensure that the output of your testing is not just a blanket result. So by definition, a message that works for 15% of your users works for 15% of your users, not for 100%. And tomorrow, it might actually not work for the same 15% that it worked for today. So keep that in mind as well. So what are the lessons that we've learned here? Um, First of all, 2023 is the year of the squeeze. On one hand, you have less cash. You have fewer resources. Uh, On the other, you have worse targeting. You have high ad prices. You have less ad effectiveness, more competition and distractions for our users. Um, This just means we need to be more creative. We cannot just create a lot of ads and throw them to the abyss. Um, Secondly, we need to look inwards at the users we already have. This is the focus of our lifecycle marketers. Uh, We need to look at that metric. Do you know that metric? So how many of your users are subscribed versus just browsing or on a free plan? How many are interacting with paid features? How many are not? Again, if Spotify is under 50%, you are likely in the same boat of opportunity. Thirdly, you need to invest in your lifecycle marketing and your lifecycle marketers, and equip them with the tools and the resources they need to actually energize this cohort of users. And remember that just because user journeys are easy, remember, they're easy for the tool, not necessarily even for you, doesn't mean that they are the most effective. And we have data that shows that they are typically not. Uh, So those are my predictions. 2023 is the year of lifecycle marketing and the year of energizing your already installed user base. Uh, The apps that figure out how to do this effectively will win. And the apps that keep pouring money into ads that are diving in effectiveness and ultimately dump users into a leaky funnel where they just keep adding to the pool of disengaged users will be the ones who lose. So what do you guys think? Do you think my predictions will play out? Do you have a different view? And should we do more episodes like this? Or should we just stick with the interviews? (laughs) So please send me a note, connect with me on LinkedIn, drop me a comment, and I look forward to hearing from you guys. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like and share and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate each and every one of you who listen very much. So that's all for this week. and I will see you next week.